We'll hear argument in BP America Production Company against uh, the Secretary. Mr. Lampkin. Thank you, Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. Section 2415A establishes a limitations period for every action for money damages by the government which is founded on any contract. That provision, by its terms, applies to every contract action, every adversary adjudication seeking monetary compensation for breach, whether pursued before a court or an agency. The contention that every action encompasses only civil actions or judicial actions is incorrect for three reasons. First, it is inconsistent with the broad language that Congress used. It is inconsistent with the statutory structure in that it renders another provision, the exception for administrative offsets, wholly superfluous, and also creates an irrationality in the hierarchy of the government's claims. Finally, it robs Section 2415A of its intended effect. Turning to the text, Congress and agencies regularly use the term action to refer to adversary adjudications both before administrative agencies and before the judiciary. The term denotes — May may I ask you on that point? Uh, I I understand what you're saying, and I've looked at your authority, but right in the provision itself, there is a verbal distinction made between actions for money damages uh, and uh, what at the end of the provision they referred to as administrative proceedings in in providing for the one-year supplementary rule. Doesn't the statute, in effect, say we don't mean by action what we would possibly, uh, what what possibly might be included as an administrative proceeding. If they had wanted an administrative proceeding uh, to be a subset of the actions for money damages, wouldn't it have been sensible for Congress to say, to refer instead of to administrative proceedings to administrative actions? Well, in fact, it refers to administrative proceedings required by contract or law. And that clause applies in the particular circumstance where a law or a contract requires some sort of administrative proceeding as a condition precedent to the action for money damages. So if you can bring your money damages action without any prior administrative proceeding, regardless of where you bring it. I think your point has to be that there are administrative proceedings that are not actions. That, that is absolutely correct. Non-adversarial administrative proceedings would themselves not be actions, and they also wouldn't be money damages actions. So the distinction the statute draws is not between money damages actions in court and money damages actions before agencies. It's before money damages actions wherever brought and the administrative proceedings that have to be brought as a condition precedent. You, you, you contend that what commenced the action here was the order demanding payment. That is correct. That's that is a the very weird commencement of an action where what then follows is what is referred to as, as an appeal within the agency. It, for, for historical reasons, the denominations are quite strange, but Fagrissa quoted on se- section 1702 and 1724, quoted on pages 5 and 6 of our reply brief, specifically state that the, the order to pay commences the proceedings. And so since that is the Which, document, which is that? It's on page 5, 6 of our brief. It's section 1702. What page reply, of your brief? 5 and 6 of the reply brief. Of the reply. Yes. And it's 30 U.S.C. 1724. And it talks or defines the demand as the order to pay. And then the definitional provisions, in turn, when they're talking about what commences the action, it says that the order to pay commences the action. And I'm, so I'm not finding it. Where is it? Page again? 6 of the reply, Your Honor. Very top. The citation says 13 U.S.C. 1724B, emphasis added. It defines demand to include an order to pay issued by the Secretary. And then the next line down, we say, Fergrissa thus recognizes that the so-called order to pay, far from concluding the action, in fact, commences it, because the, word, the statute of limitations period uses the word commence to describe what the action, the order to pay does. Why isn't, why doesn't it make much more sense, as I understand the proceeding, this order doesn't come out of the blue. As required, there has to be a letter to the, uh, to the payee, uh, saying we think we think you owe so much money, he is allowed to respond, right? That and then after considering the response, the order issues. Now I would consider that a uh, you know an, that sounds to me like a complaint and, and an opportunity to respond to it, and then finally the first decision of the agency, which is then appealed, and, and, and CFR provides for an, what it calls an appeal. And it seems to me the final opinion of the agency is the opinion on the appeal. 
In fact, that process, which isn't even mentioned in the regulations, doesn't have any legal operative effect. It's more like a demand letter. If the lessee doesn't respond to the letter, he doesn't waive any of his rights. If the government fails to include a claim in its demand letter, in the, uh, in the audit letter, it doesn't waive any of its rights. The well, it first document, waive it, but it, it can't issue the order without having, uh, having issued the, the letter first, giving, right. giving the party an opportunity to say why this amount isn't owed. Well, in fact, there's nothing in the regulations, and I, I think the Solicitor General would concede, that actually requires this informal process. It happens to be t- typically done, and the SG uses the word typically in the brief, but there's nothing that requires it. And if you don't respond, there are no consequences to failure. Is there anything that re- requires the order? Um, did, did anything that requires the Secretary to proceed by order? Yeah. Uh, that is the Secretary's traditional way of doing things, yes, but <laughs> — So you could say the same for the other. Oh, but it, if there is no liability if the order fails to issue. The order, if it were the first salvo, you still would be required to respond. And so your failure to respond is very much a default. The failure to respond to the letter, the audit letter, has no legal operative effect. You don't, you don't, re- like you don't respond to the order. You take an appeal from the order. That's correct. You file a document. crazy to call that order a complaint. I, I, even if I grant your — your other argument that an administrative proceeding can be uh, commenced by a complaint, uh, or that the, that the term complaint can, can apply to administrative proceedings, I don't think that what you've hung your hat on here, namely the order, seems to me to fit that description. Well, Justice Scalia, it is the first document which is recognized in the regulation, regulations which provides the last sore of the notice of the claims against it the first one that's required by the regulations in order to commence the proceedings. You mean it's the regulations reg- don't refer to the initial letter? No. They don't rec- the regulations don't require this informal process. It's typically done. So they literally could start absolutely out of the blue by issuing the order? I think that's correct. That is the way that it could be done. There's an informal process that's typically followed, but you could ignore it, and there's no legal operative effect. I, that doubt, whether that would con- I doubt whether that would conform with the Administrative Procedure Act. I mean, either, even at the first level of agency decision, well, it seems to me you have to give the uh, individual an opportunity to reply. Well, that is perhaps why the agency tries this, to do the informal process, but in fact, it does not have legal operative effect. There, you could completely ignore that initial demand letter and say, sorry, agency, I'm not responding. The agency then files its order, and that's the first time you must register your defenses upon failure of forfeiture. Of course you can ignore it. That doesn't prove anything. You, you can ignore an agency complaint, too. Right. A formal complaint, in which case you'll be found liable. What does what the fact exa- that you don't have to respond have to do with anything? The legal consequences. It's exactly right, Justice Scalia. If you don't respond to the demand letter, there are no legal consequences. If you don't respond to the letter by filing what's called an appeal, you lose. And so it's just like a complaint. You default if you fail to raise your defenses at that point. In addition, Section 2450. It's also, I assume, true that the demand letter would not toll a statute. No, we don't believe the demand letter would toll a statute because it's not required by Well, you'd, you'd, by you'd win in this case even if it did. I, I, I don't think that the difference between the initial letter giving you an opportunity to reply and the what, what you call the complaint, the order, uh, that time period doesn't put you out of, uh, out of the permissible period. Oh, I, I certainly hope, hope not. But, yeah. in fact, Section 2415F, which is on page 4 and 5, of the appendix to our brief makes it clear that whether something's denominated a complaint or not does not determine whether or not it's covered by the limitations period. 2415F is an exception for counterclaims and offsets by the government where a private party brings an action against the government. But counterclaims and offsets typically aren't brought by complaint. They're brought in the answer. They're submitted in the answer. Therefore, whether it's denominated an order, an answer, or something else doesn't control whether or not 2415 applies. 2415 applies to any action for money damages founded on contract, however you might denominate the initial filing which commences the proceedings. Um, Mr. Lampkin, the point has been made that there are many indications that what Congress had in mind was an ordinary civil action in the court. In addition to finding this provision solely in Title 28, the Judiciary Code, and not in Title V, there's also, if you read the following provision, 2416, time for commencing actions brought by the United States. And then it tells us the tolling periods. And in doing that, it refers twice to the defendant. 
which is a term that's used in civil proceedings, not administrative proceedings. Well, starting with 28 U.S.C., why it's there. It, in fact, applies both to administrative agency actions and actions in courts. And sometimes in 28 U.S.C., there are provisions that apply to both. The Federal Tort Claims Act, for example, is in 28 U.S.C., and it has a provision for administrative adjustment of claims. People must file their claims before an agency first, and then the agency can do an administrative adjustment. That's entirely separate from the Attorney General's ability to compromise the claim once it's filed in court. Section Title V also contains things that apply to courts and agencies, the uh, right to judicial review of agency actions, the waiver of immunity that's necessary for those, Um, in addition the standards that govern judicial review of agency actions. Those are all in Title V, but they actually apply to courts. Well, 2415A, little i, you you cannot possibly say that that only applies to judicial actions, can you? Oh, no, that's uh, actually... And that's, in, and that's in Title 28. And that's in, yes, that's in Title 28 as well. And with respect to the term defendants, Justice Ginsburg, Congress has often used the term defendants even in the context of administrative actions. The Stockyard and Packers Act of 1921, it's in 7 U.S.C. 210, actually talks about a complaint against a defendant for damages, all adjudicated before the Secretary of Agriculture. And that was 85 years ago. It seems a little late in the day now to debate whether one can be a defendant the person who defends before an agency, as well as the It's not the typical term used in agency proceedings to designate the responding party. Well, you can talk about the responding party or the defendant, but the term defendant is sufficiently broad to include one who defends or denies, and that would be a term, and it's been used in the past as long as 85 years ago, to discuss the person who might be liable for damages in the And the content of the tolling provision as well seems geared, seems to a civil lawsuit. It talks about a person being outside the United States, therefore they wouldn't be amenable to service of process. Um. That, that, that's certainly right. These are all things that would apply, we would expect, both to a civil action in court and an administrative agency action as well. They may work better for one or the other in different particular circumstances, but they are all sufficiently broad that they can be used in both circumstances. And the one the government in the administrative con- context would be most interested in would be subsection C. When the government is, doesn't know of the facts or the government reasonably couldn't know of the facts, it gets an exception. It gets tolling until it reasonably could have known of the facts. And that's just as applicable in an action before an agency as it would be in an action before a court. In addition, the, the um, government's contrary construction renders an entire provision superfluous, and that is the one that Justice Scalia mentioned, Section 2415I, which is an exception for administrative offsets. That exception for administrative offsets would do no work at all. That wasn't part of the original statute, was it? No, that was added about 16 years later, Your Honor, and it was added, but it clarifies the scope of the statute. And as this Court admitted and pointed out in cases like Fausto and Lafranca, a later amendment to a statute can clarify its meaning, and indeed statutes are ordinarily read once amended as if they existed in their amended form from the office. I thought that I was added because this is for a very specific reason that there was a debate between the Department of Justice and um, I forgot the other agency. Comptroller, Your Honor, yes. About whether an offset would be subject to the time limit. That's exactly right, and Congress resolved that debate by providing an exception for administrative offsets and no other exception for any Which, sort of administrative proceeding. And that raises the strong inference that, in fact, this applies to administrative proceedings, and it simply doesn't apply to administrative offsets because they're an exception. They, they, Contra- they, they, they could have said uh, if, uh, uh, if the other interpretation of 2415A as not applying to administrative proceedings were correct, they could have said the provisions of this section do not apply to administrative proceedings. That, that's precisely which, which would have which would have handled the offset. Yes, it would have gone well beyond the offset. And that's the fact exactly that they right. only focus on the offset. Certainly suggests that when you're not talking about offset, it does apply to administrative proceedings. I, I could not have said it better, and I will not attempt to. In fact, in addition, it raises another anomaly in the statute: the government's contrary construction, and that is it creates sort of an irrationality in the hierarchy of claims for the government. Offensive judicial actions to extract money from private individuals must be brought within six years. Administrative offsets for the government to try and avoid paying money 
those must be brought within 10 years under the administrative offset provision that was enacted together with the exception in I. However, offensive administrative actions to extract money may be brought in perpetuity forever. It simply strains credulity to believe that Congress, at the same time it was saying the government has only 10 years to assert administrative offsets to avoid paying money, instead it intended administrative agencies to be able to extract money on that very same claim I can believe in perpetuity. I can, I can believe that they do that. <laughs> well, ju- just by, by mistake, but I would not assume a mistake unless it's very clear. I think that's exactly right, Justice Scalia, and that's, again, going back to Fausto, where there is a sensible hierarchy of claims or a sensible hierarchy of preferences. The Court doesn't ordinarily presume that Congress put in a structure that doesn't respect that ordinary hierarchy. And the government's construction here is inconsistent with the ordinary hierarchy, which allows the government to avoid making payment on more favorable terms than the government gets to go in and forcibly extract money from private individuals. Finally, the government's construction also undermines the intended effect of the statute. The effect of statute, the purpose of statute's limitations, and this one in particular, is to provide repose to allow the individual to know that he will no longer confront government claims, to dispose of his documents, and also to encourage the government to be diligent in pursuing its claims. None of those purposes are achieved. All of those purposes are defeated if once the statute of limitations period expires. Mr. Lampton, yes. can we go back to Section I for, for a second more? Is it also possible to say that uh, there was this disagreement between the Department of Justice and the Controller General and uh, Congress decided that the Controller General was right. And if that's true, should we not accept the Controller General's reading of the entire statute? Well, if Congress had decided that the Controller General is right and had done that in subsection I, it would have written subsection I the way Justice Scalia proposed, which is to say this doesn't apply to administrative claims at all. What it did is it said, ooh, this appears to apply to administrative claims, and the Comptroller thinks these administrative offsets are important. So we will give a special statute of limitations period in 31 U.S.C. for those and exempt them from the more general statute of limitations period in Section 28 U.S.C. 2415. So I don't believe that it, it should be read that way. Uh, is it frivolous to suggest that that's the reading? No, the government got Does it. the legislative history tell us how detailed the congressional examination of the particular issue was? Well, indeed, the legislative history mentions, and there is a battle of letters between that's the Office of Legal Counsel and the, uh, the Comptroller on this issue. And Congress actually stepped into the fray and created an exception, but it created a limited exception, an exception that applies only to one context, and that's administrative offsets. And that certainly raises a very strong inference that where there isn't such an exception, the, con- the, the statute applies to administrative proceedings more generally. Isn't the most likely answer that they just, they saw a small problem and they rendered a decision on the small problem. They didn't think about it any further than that. Well, I, I have a hard time psychoanalyzing Congress because it's sort of a corporate body and I can't tell what member of Congress is saying what. But when the court reads statutes, it generally reads them and it in fact avoids whenever possible superfluity. And if this provision applies to administrative proceedings from the outset, Subsection I is surproofless. It does no work whatsoever. And so when Congress amended this statute, it certainly clarified that where there is no exception, this statute applies to actions filed in administrative proceedings. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Mr. Joseph. Justice Stevens, and may it please the Court. The presumption is that the government is not bound by a statute of limitations. And when read as a whole, Section 2415A does not overcome that presumption, but instead makes clear that it applies only to suits in court. There are several reasons for that. First, the ordinary meanings of all of the key statutory terms refer to suits in court. Second, the statute expressly distinguishes between administrative proceedings and actions. Third, the statute is located in the Judicial Code. Fourth, um, the committee reports, for those who are inclined to consider them, strongly support the statute's ordinary meaning. And fifth, even if some administrative proceedings were governed by Section 2415A, these would not because they do not involve a complaint. Now, on the first of those points, the term action ordinarily refers to the pursuit of a right in court, which is why just seven years ago, in West v. Gibson, every member of this court agreed that the term action often refers only to suits in court 
and not to administrative proceedings. It often does. It often does, but it does not universally. And then there are a number of instances cited by, uh, uh, by the petitioner that uh, uh, where this Court and, uh, and statutes use, use the term in, in a context where it clearly applies to administrative proceedings. Well, so, so the question is how, uh, you know, how, how absurd is it not to read it to apply to administrative proceedings in this case? And I find it pretty absurd because you assume, if you read it that way, that there's effectively no statute of limitations whatever for the government in these cases. Well, the, the structure of the law here is that in those instances where Congress does authorize administrative recovery, it ordinarily provides a context-specific administrative limitations period, such as in the Contract Disputes Act, which governs almost all of the contract claims the government can pursue administratively. Congress specifically enacted a six-year limitations period for the submission of a claim to a contracting officer. In this unique context, however, Congress had very good reasons for not applying a limitations period until it prospectively enacted a partial one in 1996. The reason is that what Congress found here in the context of mineral leasing, based on the findings of an independent commission, was that the companies were historically on an honor system and had abused that by underpaying royalties by up to half a billion dollars annually. So what Congress directed the agency to do was to audit all current and past lease accounts. One of the committee reports said to focus on old accounts, because this was a Congress that was not concerned with repose, but with getting some of those vast underpayments back from the companies. Now, when we fast forward to 1996, at that point — Excuse me, and this was the Congress that enacted what? No, I agreed. What I'm referring to now is the, the Congress that enacted the mineral leasing provisions, which is not a good Which is not what we're talking about. No, but, but, but we are, because the structure of the law here is the Section 2415A, as we see it, governs court suits, and it works because when Congress authorizes administrative recovery, it almost always provides a specific, context-specific administrative limitations period. Also, when Congress was telling the agency to focus on old accounts, uh, certainly wasn't thinking that a statute of limitations applied to that, and the agency in that contemporary context did not understand that there was a limitations period either because the orders it issued in the aftermath of the 1982 Act went back seven, eight, nine, sometimes more years than that. As late as 1978, the Justice Department didn't, didn't think that way, did it? Now, the, the Justice Department — The opinion of the Office of Legal Counsel in 78 was exactly what the petitioner here would urge. No, the, the OLC opinion was limited by both its terms and its reasoning to administrative offsets, not to administrative adjudications. And if I could explain that. An administrative offset occurs in a situation, this is what OLC was looking at, where the government by statute owed retirement benefits to a person. And because it thought that person owed it money, what the government did was to unilaterally reduce the retirement benefits. What OLC opined is that that is a, nothing more than a prejudgment attachment. And OLC thought that if the government is time-barred from obtaining a judgment, it should be time-barred from obtaining a prejudgment attachment. An administrative adjudication is significantly different because it does provide an actual judgment. Um, so there are a couple important points from that. First is that the dispute between OLC and the Comptroller General was limited by its terms to administrative offsets. Although, Justice Stevens, the Comptroller General did opine beyond that, that the statute specifically applies only to suits in court. Um, but the actual um, dispute was as to administrative offsets. So when Congress addressed that specific dispute, as Justice Alito pointed out, it resolved only that specific dispute. But excuse me, how could OLC possibly think that it applied to administrative offsets if it didn't apply to administrative proceedings? I mean, it was a contradiction of the proposition which you're urging here, which is that this statute applies only to judicial proceedings. I mean, that's the point. Whether they spoke just to offsets or not, the position taken by the Justice Department was that this statute relates to administrative proceedings. No, the, the position of OLC was, was limited to administrative offsets. And it, it did not, the important thing is the OLC opinion did not interpret the statutory term action or, frankly, any other statutory term. Instead, it had a theory, um, which was probably wrong, that administrative offsets are, are unique because they are prejudgment attachment devices. Um, that's the dispute that went to Congress, and that's the dispute that Congress actually resolved. Um, and in any event, going forward um, — well, on, on, on that theory, then, it, there, there, was, there was no time issue with respect to the right to, uh, to offset, then, in the OLC's position. No, the OLC's view is that if the government was time-barred from obtaining a judgment under Section 2415A, then it would be time-barred from obtaining a prejudgment attack. No, but I thought you were, in, in answer to Justice Scalia, you said what was essential to, the, to OLC's position uh, was uh, that the offset is like a prejudgment attachment. 
uh, and, in, in effect, it's an attachment without process. If that's the case, uh, then timing should have nothing to do with it. Conversely, as Justice Scalia said, if timing does have something to do with it, timing presumably derives from this provision. This provision, therefore, must have been assumed to apply to administrative proceedings. Uh, so either there's no time question with respect to the offsets, or if there is a time question with respect to the offsets, it implies an OLC position that this, this provision applies to administrative proceedings. Yeah, well, what, what's wrong with that logic? Um, I, I think what's wrong with the logic is what was wrong with the logic of the OLC opinion. We don't mean to defend the reason of the OLC in good opinion. Company, but, but what OLC really did say, and Comptroller General and Congress promptly disagreed, uh, was that it didn't see a problem, OLC didn't see a problem with procedurally imposing an administrative offset. What it saw a problem with was a thought that if a, a, a judgment would be time-barred, then a prejudgment attachment should be time-barred as well. I mean, that was the reasoning of the no, OLC but if, if opinion, it was a which I agree it was, was a prejudgment attachment in aid of what could be accomplished administratively by ultimately an administrative judgment. No, the I guess there's another point. The OLC opinion was arose in the context where a judgment could be obtained at all only in court. We have that the opinion, by the way. Both sides cited it. Is it, uh, it was unpublished. It was unpublished. Does and anybody give it to us? Petitioners offered to lodge it with the court. Yeah, I know they did budget. offer, but nobody did it. I'll, we'll do it this afternoon. Good. I would like that. Um, uh, the point's just the OLC reasoning was, was admittedly somewhat odd, but that was with the context in which Congress was responding to. And going forward, it's not surplusage, because the issue still arises if the government could pursue a suit only in court and would be time-barred from pursuing a suit in court, the question would then still arise under the OLC opinion, unless it had been overruled, whether the government could nonetheless obtain a prejudgment attachment, even though it could not obtain a judgment. That's all the Congress was looking at there. And as this Court's recognized in cases like Ogilvy and Vaughn, when Congress amends a statute to resolve a specific dispute, oftentimes its amendment should be read as doing no more than that. Um, we, I agree, though, that, that terms, to get back to the beginning of this discussion, terms do not always have their ordinary meanings. But they presumptively do, especially when a statute must be strictly construed. And here the context confirms that action does have its ordinary meaning for several reasons. First, the ordinary meanings of the other key statutory terms, such as right of action, complaint, and defendant, as Justice Ginsburg pointed out, all ordinarily refer to aspects of suits in court. A right of action is the right to bring a suit in court. A defendant is the person uh, defending in court ordinarily. And a complaint is the document that initiates proceedings by stating a claim and seeking relief in a civil action, which is a suit in court. Especially when those terms are used together, this Court recognized an unexcelled chemical that a reference to commencing an action by filing a complaint ordinarily refers to filing a suit in court, not a, a, a pleading before an administrative agency. The statute then goes on to expressly juxtapose an action against an administrative proceeding by saying that the time to file an action does not run until after the administrative proceedings have concluded, which certainly gives weight to the point that the action is an administrative proceeding is not an action. Would the, at the time that uh, the, the uh, 4515, uh, is, is that the? 20, I'm sorry. At the time that was enacted, were there any limitations in other statutes on administrative, on the commencement of administrative proceedings? The, the ones that we have found, we're, I'm not 100 sure, but the ones that we, that we have found and cited in our brief do appear to be enacted after that time. Absolutely. I think the reason is that, I mean, historically, administrative, obviously, court pursuits have been around a lot longer than administrative adjudications. And as Congress has authorized administrative adjudications, it's dealt with them on a case-by-case -case basis. And every time that it enacted a context-specific administrative adjudications period since uh, 1966, in theory, it could have just done an across-the-board one for all agency adjudications, but instead it's chosen to deal with the context-specific in part because of the great variety of administrative procedure. I mean, as this case illustrates, a, a statute of limitations that governs a complaint and an action is just not going to work in a lot of administrative contexts. Here, there's no complaint. Um, an order is a legally binding order. It doesn't seek relief. It imposes it. And unless it is both appealed and stayed pending appeal, um, not the initial letter that, that, has to, that, that in, in the agency practice precedes the order. I gather there's a letter. The right. There's, there, are, there are basically three steps here. First, there's an audit. Then if the audit reveals an apparent discrepancy, uh, the agency or a state with delegated authority would send an issue letter requesting an explanation. An issue letter. It's called an issue letter. Uh, and that would re basically request an explanation of the apparent discrepancy. And then if the agency then decides after consideration of the audit and the issue letter that it's appropriate to issue in order to pay, it will do so. 
It sounds to me like a complaint, a response. An issue letter? And and an adjudication. I mean, uh, you know. I I don't know whether you mean the authorization. We think you owe this. The response comes back. I don't think we owe it, and here's why. And then there's a ruling. You do owe it, and that's the order. And then you can appeal it. And and, and the CFR refers to it as as an appeal. Yeah, well, there are a few things. First, on the — with respect to the issue letter, I mean, a complaint functionally is a document that initiates proceedings Stating a, by stating a claim for relief and seeking relief in a civil action. With respect to the second of those, an issue letter does not, is not an allegation of wrongdoing and it does not seek relief. It seeks information so that the agency can determine whether or not an apparent discrepancy raised by an audit is in fact a discrepancy. It, I mean, it, it no does claim. not assert that there is a discrepancy? Well, what it, what it asserts is that we've done an audit and the audit has raised the following issues. That's why it's called an issue letter. Um, please provide an explanation. Um, and it, so at that point, the agency has not decided yet whether it is, in fact, asserting a claim. It's not, and it's not requesting relief, which a complaint definitely does. All it's requesting is information to help the agency assess the issue. Do we have an example of initial letters anywhere? That's not in the materials either, is it? In, no, in, in fact, it's not even, in, in fact, it's not even in the administrative record, which right. is one reason it's just not in the issue. Do, do we know case, what Which also reflects that it's not a formal complaint or it would be in the record. Do we know in this case what time lapse there was between the issue letter and the order? Um, I don't think it was more than a year or two. Um, but w- there was that, if you took the issue letter as the day, wouldn't all of the, all of the government's claims be timely? Because we're only talking about part of the claim anyway, as I understand it. Is that correct? Here, I think if it ran I, I don't think so. I, I, I try to figure that yeah, out. Yeah, if it ran from I the, if it ran from the issue letter, I think there'd still be about a year in dispute here. There would be some in dispute. Um, going forward, but, if we, if we agree with your position, the result will be that there will be a seven-year limitations period for oil and gas leases, but for, for Indian claims and for other minerals, there will be no statute of limitations? Yes. And, and the reason is that that's what Congress chose to do. I mean, in the prospective 1996 Act, when they enacted the seven-year limitation period, did they explain why they would treat those two situations so differently? No, there's no explanation. As a practical matter, though, the, the prospective 1996 legislation governs a wide variety of aspects of the, of the relationship between the federal government and the lessees. And on balance, that package was, was pretty favorable to the oil companies. And I think pr- Congress probably just decided not to, to apply that to itself, but not to the Indians. Um, getting back to the order, though, it's not only that — do you defend against a claim for, you know, stuff that went on 100 years ago? Did, did, well, as, as, as a practice, I'm, I'm really very reluctant to, uh, unless there is no possible other reading of the statute to think that that's, that that's what the law provides, that, that the government can show up a hundred years later and say, oh, by the way, you owe all this money. Well, first off, until the 19- says, gee, you don't have records from a hundred years ago. Right. Well, there are a few points, both legal and practical. On the legal, until 1966, that absolutely was the law because historically no limitations period ever applies against the government, and that's the reason for the strict construction canon, that the statute applies here only if it clearly applies and thereby bars the government from enforcing the law in the public interest. Say Um, that again. Until 1966, there were no statute of limitations against any government suits? uh, Not contract. I mean, the historical rule is that the government is not bound by statutes of limitations because what it's doing is enforcing the law in the public interest. Now, in 1966, Congress enacted Section 2415A, so that there would prospectively be a, a contract limitations period. But, th- but it's strictly construed because of the historical backdrop and the importance of enforcing the law in the public interest. So that's why we do have a strict construction canon here. As a just didn't apply against the government either. For the same reason, Latches has never applied against the government. So um, there's no limit at all, and you, you concede that that's the case. So the government could go back on these royalties as long as it likes. Well, as an abstract theoretical matter, the government could reach back many, many decades. As a practical matter, though, that's never happened that we've gone back, say, 50 or 100 years, and there are practical reasons for that. First is that the agency does not have enough resources. Well, there's to audit a case them. involving the Oneida Indians that went back quite a ways. It's true. It's, I, I meant in the leasing years. context here. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean in the leasing context here. Um, but in the leasing context, one th- there are a couple important points. One is that the government does not have enough resources to audit all of the current accounts in all of the years, which is one of the reasons that we need to be able to uh, go back farther when we catch a continuing violation. As a re- but as a result, the notion that we're going to pull auditing resources off of today to do a frolic and detour into 50 years ago, there's a reason that's never happened. In addition, the farther we try to go back, the greater the proof problems, because oftentimes only the companies have the information that shows what oilties they would owe. 
And if they lawfully destroy those records after six years, it makes it even harder for us to try to go back because of proof problems. That, that's another indication. Why would you allow them to destroy those records after six years if you, if you, thought, if you thought that, uh, that there was no statute of limitations to, to claims for these things? I mean, that, that, that's just another inconsistency that in, in, in the statutory scheme that's created. Well, no, the, you say you can destroy your records after six years. Well, why? It doesn't make any sense. Well, first, it's optional, not mandatory. If they want to keep them, they certainly yeah. can. But there's no — and as a practical matter, I mean, because the government bears the initial burden of going forward, if a company destroys the sources of proof, that's on balance going to be in its favor. Um, but in addition, there's not a strict congruence between the six-year periods, um, because first, the companies only have to keep records for six years, but in some circumstances, the Secretary can require them to be kept for longer. In addition, sometimes the statute of limitations, because of tolling, is much longer than six years. And so the lawful destruction of records would still leave absence of proof issues in situations where the statute might, because of tolling, be much longer. So there's not a strict congruence. And there's also no indication that Congress enacted the six-year records retention policy because it was thinking about a six-year limitations period. There's never been any linkage between the two. Um, if I could briefly cover then also, I mean, in addition to all the textual points, this is also located in the judicial code. And although it's true that a couple stray provisions in the judicial code apply to administrative proceedings, they say that expressly. Every time the word action is used in the judicial code, and petitioners have identified no examples, every time the word action is used in the judicial code, it refers to a suit in court and only a suit in court. When a provision in the judicial code applies to something else, it will say so. For example, 28 U.S. Code 2462, which is a, a, a statute of limitations for penalty proceedings, refers to an action suit or proceeding. The Federal Tort Claims Act is very clear that what it's talking about is submitting something to an agency. Um, so if Congress was going to legislate against the backdrop of a strict construction canon with terms that ordinarily refer to suits in court and put the provision in the judicial code, I mean, that just is a totally irrational way of expressing an intent, especially, clear, especially a clear intent, that's trying to govern administrative proceedings. The committee reports also strongly confirm that because they not only say that the statute defines the time limitation for bringing an action in the U.S. courts and not only use court terminology from front to back, they also say, like the statute, that they're aware of administrative proceedings, but what they're saying is that the time to bring an action in the courts does not expire until after the conclusion of those proceedings. The committees also explained that the reason for that provision was the great number and variety of administrative proceedings. So in other words, Congress was saying there's a great variety of administrative procedure. We're just not going to deal with that here. We're taking it off the table by saying this limitations period does not expire until a year after those administrative proceedings, whatever they might be, have expired. There's also some relevance in the fact that this legislation was proposed by the D Justice Department as part of an overall package of reforms that would govern the civil litigation the Department was handling in the courts. Um, it was then referred to the Judiciary Committees, not to the House Government Reform Committees that might consider administrative procedure matters. Uh, and as I mentioned before, it was enacted as part of the Judicial Code. From start to finish, this legislation has never had anything to do with anything other than court suits, which is why Congress has expressly provided for context-specific administrative systems, uh, limitations periods, which makes sense in the context of the relevant administrative procedures. Well, when you say this, li this uh, legislation, you, you limit it to uh, uh, the body of uh, 2415A, and, and you, uh, you leave out little i, which, um, or I guess it's one, is it? Little, or, it's no. i. It is i. It's i. Um, I mean, that, that clearly does apply to administrative proceedings. And I could understand the argument that Congress was just, just making things doubly clear, okay, that, that A does not apply to administrative proceedings. I could understand that argument if the way I was written is the provisions of this section shall not apply to administrative proceedings. And then I would say, you know, well, that was always the case, and, and this is just uh, just making it clear. It doesn't say that. It, 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 it says that uh, the only administrative proceeding that they cut out of it is, is these offsets. I think the reason and, is that — You know, the norm, normal rule is inclusio unius, exclusio alterius. I, I would — it means to me when I read the statute as a whole, and that's the way I read statutes, I don't ask whether this section was — adopted this year and the other section was adopted next year. I don't do it, do it bite by bite. You look at the whole text, and when you read all this stuff together, it, it seems to me that uh, 
the import of, of I is, is that administrative proceedings, uh, despite the fact that action is not a very common word to use for them, uh, are covered. I mean, it's, there's no doubt that statute should be read as a whole, but as this Court has explained in cases like the Ogilvie and Vaughn cases cited in our brief, um, when a Court's trying to make sense of a statute read as a whole, oftentimes it will find that when Congress faces a specific dispute and amends a statute to resolve that specific dispute, that's all it resolves, and there's no reason to draw further negative inference, especially here, as the Court of Appeals pointed out, where a strict construction canon applies. Um, that, that, that's the best thing you have going for you, really. The strict construction canon. Well, because, I mean, and it is an important point that the statute applies only if it clearly applies by its terms. And it seems to me the best petitioners can do is to say that some of the statutory terms in isolation are ambiguous. But that all that means, as I said, is that under the strict construction canon, we would prevail. And even if the statute governs some administrative proceedings but not others, it would not govern these for the reason I gave earlier, which is that there's no complaint here. Uh, we talked before about the ways in which an order is not a complaint. It's another important point, though, that an order not only is, not only does not begin the proceedings, it normally ends them, because appeals are only taken about a quarter of the time, and in some limited circumstances, there's not even a right of appeal if the Assistant Secretary issued the order. What if so, I didn't think the order was a complaint, but I thought the initial letter was a complaint? Uh, would, uh, would the petitioner lose? Because they never made that argument. Correct. It's the only argument they've ever made is that an order is a complaint, so they haven't preserved the point. Because you, um, you made but, the point that the issue letter is just raising the issues and it's not charging as a complaint would allege you owe us, but this is maybe you owe us. Correct. There's no, in an issue letter, there's no claim for relief, um, just claim for request for information, and there's no allegation of wrongdoing. So it's just not a complaint in those ways. Also, it doesn't, it's not really fair to say that it begins proceedings because it comes between an audit and an order to pay. So it doesn't, and all, plus it's, of course, not filed in a civil action. And in that respect, it doesn't satisfy any of the, de- any of the elements of the, of the ordinary definition of complaint. Wait, are, are you saying that this doesn't apply to any administrative proceeding or just those that are structured like this one, where you don't have anything that's labeled a complaint? We, well, our, our primary submission is that it does not apply to any administrative proceedings for the reason that, reasons I've given, that the, the ordinary meanings of all of the key statutory terms refer to suits in court. A complaint itself is ordinarily defined to be even if you have an administrative court. proceeding which is called a complaint, yeah, I mean, and some are, I think. There, there are some contexts in administrative procedure in which the word complaint is used. And that would not be covered by, by 2415A. Because it's not filed in an action, which refers to a suit in court, following the curl of a right of action, which refers to the right to bring a suit in court, in a statute which then juxtaposes the terms action against administrative proceedings. And let's assume all court. those terms are used in the agency procedure. They're talking about uh, uh, action, right of action. All those terms are used in the agency's uh, procedural rules. Would they then come under this thing? No. I think you have to say no, because otherwise it would be up to the agency just by renaming their their things to come in or out, right? Well, and it's a much more fundamental point than that, too, is that what Congress was doing here was, was, I mean, using these terms in their ordinary sense to lay out an an across-the-board rule that applies to suits in court. Um, and finally, one thing I should, should also emphasize is that what we have in this context is a comprehensive administrative scheme. Petitioners like to say that, well, we could just as easily be in court. There's a reason that no administrative royalty proceeding has ever been brought by the government in a court. And that's first that Congress directed the agency to establish a comprehensive um, auditing and collection system, and then gave the agency administrative authority to enforce its administrative orders. The only way the agency could administer thousands of leases with something like $9 billion in royalties every year is to do this in an efficient administrative manner. Congress has not only authorized that and ratified it, uh, it has strengthened that scheme and told the agency, as I said in 1982, to go back and look at old leases, precisely because Congress knew that this is a, a standalone administrative scheme and it's never provided an administrative limitations period for the standalone administrative scheme. If there are no more questions. Thank you, Mr. Joseph. Mr. Lampkin, as I understand it, you have about 11 minutes left. You don't Thank have you. to use them all. <laughs> I will endeavor not to. Thank you, Justice Stevens. I wanted to start with the ordinary meaning of the term action. 
Um, I was somewhat amused by the government's insistence that had the term action in West versus Gibson was construed, it must mean an action before a court and has that as its ordinary meaning. The Solicitor General's own position in West versus Gibson on page 25 and 6 of its brief was, Section 1981A does not, however, define the term action as being limited to judicial proceedings. The statutory language read in context suggests that no such limitation was intended. Page 6 of the government's reply. The term action in Section 1981 can reasonably be construed as encompassing both administrative and judicial proceedings. The term action is a term that's used for adversary adjudicative proceedings, whether those are in court or before an agency. It is not limited to administrative agency proceedings, as the government itself recognized in West versus Gibson. There are more general terms here. There's also complaint. There's also defendant. There's a number of those. But those general terms are also the terms of adversary adjudication. And Congress uses them as far back as 1921 for adversary adjudications before agencies. Mr. Lampkin, have you had any second thoughts about your position that it's the order rather than the issue letter that uh, we should look at? Well, in fact, (laughs) no. Um, But the, the answer is that we didn't — no issue was engaged as to what was the functional equivalent of the complaint below. That raised — was raised for the first time by the Solicitor General in its merits brief, saying, no, 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 there's actually some stuff that comes before the order. But if you, I would encourage the Court to look at the definitions in Fargrissa 1724 and 1702A, which tell you what, under — in Congress's view, commences the proceedings here. And in Congress's view, what commences the proceedings, what triggers the new statute of limitations and stops it from running, is the order to pay, which Congress defines as a demand. Well, that's we know true. That's true. Well. But the provision you're, you're arguing that you come under does, re, does talk about a complaint. That's and and that's, what, you know, that's what starts the six years running. And it it's, seems to me odd to call something a complaint, which is, in fact, an order. They're not complaining about anything. They're saying, pay the money. Actually, Justice Scalia. You know, usually a complaint, you, you, you make your point and say, what do you say? Well, what's your answer? Well, and this is an order. You're, boom, pay. It certainly has a hybrid quality, Justice Scalia, and it's not a hybrid quality that the industry particularly likes. But it is the first time that the government asserts its state, its claims as to what's wrong in a binding, legal, legally operative document where the failure to respond results in default. It has that function as complaint. It is the first salvo in official, formal, administrative proceeding. That's only true if you consider an appeal to be the response. And that's rather weird that, that, it, it is, that the response to a complaint is, is an appeal. Uh, the, 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 the language that has been used, and as a result of very odd historical anomalies and attempts to introduce a sense of due process to these proceedings over time, is odd and it is awkward. But it's clear that when Congress wrote the scope of this statute, it said it applies to every action for money damages by the government, which is founded in contract. It doesn't say actions that are begun by complaint. Now, the complaint is what Congress assumes will stop the provision from running. And there is always in an adversary adjudication some document that functions like a complaint, that provides the defendant the notice of what the claims are against it and to which failure to respond will result in default. We believe that the most likely thing to be the complaint here, the thing that provided us with notice and said, Boys, you've got to respond, otherwise you're in trouble, was the order to pay. And Congress came to that same conclusion when it, enact, when it enacted FAGRISA and established a seven-year statute of limitations provision. But if we lose two years of, of, of the claim and only get one because it is the agency letter in the Court's view, well, that's fine. But there's some document here that started these agency proceedings, and it is that document which is a complaint. We're going to have a supplemental material filed. The OLC opinion. Could, could you could you get us a you know a sample of, of an agency letter? Or if you can't, maybe the government can. Yeah, that's that's true. And in terms of the um, the OLC letter, we offered to lodge it in our brief. Unfortunately, by the court's rules, we're not allowed to lodge it unless the clerk specifically requests it. And so that's why it's not there. Um, but we will get that to you, or the government will get it to you as soon as possible. Um, the actual agency letter in this case isn't in the administrative record, and it turns out that we haven't been able to find it, and the government hasn't been able to find it. And so it's a letter. It's a demand letter, um, but it is a letter, and that the order to pay is actually the opening salvo in these proceedings. And again, what opens the proceedings in the Justice Department regulations and other regulations? May I suggest this, Mr. Lampkin, that when the, when the filing is made giving us the OLC opinion, you include a, a, an example of such a letter. 
An, yes, yes, of so course. So we'll get a, a notion of what it will Right. It, it, it may have to be from some other proceeding. It wouldn't necessarily be from this case. Y- your position is this would apply to the universe of administrative proceedings. Now, this particular uh, lease arrangement is taken care of by an express statute of limitations. So what we're talking about for the future, what what would change under your interpretation? Not gas leases, because that, there's a seven-year limitation for both administrative orders to pay and right. court actions. Right. It would be all leases on Indian lands. It would be all leases which involve minerals other than oil and gas, whether it be coal, gold, silver, anything like that. It would also be all claims before September, all production before September of 1996. And that introduces something of an oddity if one accepts the government's position. It would be that for all claims going forward from September of 1996, the government has seven years. But for the prior 200 years, those claims persist in perpetuity. And when Section 2415A itself was enacted, Congress avoided precisely that result by deeming all prior claims to have accrued on the date the statute of limitations was enacted. And the very fact that Congress didn't do that here is evidence that Congress, to the extent it has anything to do with it at all, is evidence that Congress, in fact, understood that there already was a statute of limitations applicable. And, in fact, what also — areas would, would we be messing up by finding for you? I mean, here — you know, if we don't find that this administrative action is covered by this statute of limitations, there's no statute of limitations. But there may, there are other, maybe other areas covered by this text, namely, uh, a suit by the United States founded upon any contract explicit or implied in law or fact where there is some kind of a statute of limitations. Right. There are, there are some contexts in which there already is a separate administrative regime which would have its own statute of limitations. The Contract Disputes Act, as the government points out, is one of those. And that would prevail over this? Yes, because, because the Contract Disputes Act has an exception at the front and says, notwithstanding 2415, it's its own animal to itself. And there is a clause at the front of 2415 that says, except as otherwise provided by Congress. And so Congress often takes exceptions. And when it modified the Mineral Leasing Act in 1996, that was an exception to the 2415 regime. So Congress knows how to conduct specialized situations and take things outside of 2415 when it needs to. But it enacted Section 2415 as a catch-all for all of those situations where Congress hadn't managed to anticipate the circumstances. And the government's premise of the whole regime is that Congress watched it. Congress provided a catch-all that catches judicial actions but leaves the government free in perpetuity to persist to proceed on precisely the same claims for precisely the same relief, plus interest. And because interest is calculated at a relatively high rate, that makes those old claims much, much more valuable than the relatively more recent claims. And it seems implausible to think that Congress enacted a catch-all limitations period with a loophole so large that it deprives the statute of limitations period of effect almost entirely. Finally, I'd like to say one moment about the statute of the canon of strict construction. And that is that it doesn't always require the court to narrow otherwise broad statutory language, particularly where doing so would have the effect of rendering another provision, here subsection I surproofless, introducing anomalies into the statutory structure and depriving the statute of its intended effect. As the Bowers case we cite in our reply brief on page 16 makes clear, and Bowers case was virtually on point, it was the case where It was a statute of limitations that could have applied to administrative agency actions, or it could not have. And the Court declined to accept a narrowing construction proffered by the government under the statute of strict construction because it would have rendered one of the provisions, one for consent proceedings, superfluous, because it would have resulted in anomaly, and because it would have undermined the premise of repose, which undergirded the statute of limitations in that case. Precisely the same things are true here, and for those reasons, the Court should reach precisely the same result. If there are no further questions, thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Lampkin. The case is taken, is uh, uh, submitted.